0: My name is uh, Stephen Wood. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. Kids, you can be standing too if you want. And then I'm going to call the kids up for a kid's sermon where all, where all the kids will be invited to come sit up front here. Uh, so let's, uh, let's read uh, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. And have the bulletin handy. I'll be coming back to it, particularly when I have the, the sermon for the grown-ups after the kid's sermon. God speaks to us this morning in his living Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And all right, you can have a seat, and kids can make your way up to the front. <clears throat> I've got the thing, apparently, <clears throat> really bad right when I, the mic turned on, uh, that I know many of our kids have had. I know some my kids have had just a, a cough that just doesn't go away, a phlegmy cough. So I apologize to everyone for how my voice sounds awful. I'm feeling fine. I promise. Hey guys. These are my favorite Sundays. Hey did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Yes. Yeah. All right. I know you've probably heard this question before. This is a really, I know, kind of annoying grown-up question, but I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite? What's your favorite Thanksgiving food? Favorite Thanksgiving food? Maisie. Pumpkin, pumpkin pie. Great answer. You never, Everett has never tried pumpkin pie. Do you have another favorite, favorite food, Everett? Turkey. A good, good, solid answer. You ate when you are okay. Oh, great. I'm glad you had some. My cousins were there. Your cousins were there, too. I'm glad you got to see your cousins, buddy. Uh, Hudson. Turkey. Turkey, too. Okay. Gravy on your turkey? Yes, no? Do you have gravy on your turkey? Do you have gravy on your turkey? No. Okay, that's fine. Very cool. All right, I'll, I'm going to do two more. I'll do the two Schwartz kids. I my, Very good. All right, what do you, your guys, Schwartz's, what's your guys' favorite? Mashed potatoes and, and gravy? Yeah. Very good. I like the cranberry sauce. The cranberry sauce. The dark horse answer. Very good. All right. Norris, you, I'll, I'll call on you too. Yeah. Um, it's like the turkey and I don't have it. Turkey and the what? Corn. And corn. Okay. Very good. All right. I love hearing that. If you guys have other favorite foods, I would love to hear them later. I promise. I I just um, I know this is kind of an annoying grown-up question, but your guys' answers are so interesting. Okay. So... Thanksgiving is over, which means I'm sure some people here, your guys' houses have been decorated now for Christmas. And I, wanna, I want to hear from you guys, what would a, an amazing Christmas look like and what would a terrible Christmas look like as you guys are now counting down the days? Uh, what would an amazing Christmas look like? Dinah. Dinah. Making a snowman would be for an amazing Christmas. That That is, yes. Uh, yeah, Joel. An amazing Christmas be you spending time with your family. Spending time with your family. Yes, yes, very good. Um, all right. Darcy, I haven't called on you yet. Yes, an amazing Christmas. Um, there will be, uh, Christmas trees all over the place. Christmas trees all over the place. Yes. And, Our, and l- that's... I was waiting for someone to say that, and Dart says lots of presents. Um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, let's see who who here I have I not called on yet. Um, Berlin. Uh, so, uh, ornaments? ornaments, yes, ornaments. Miriam, what about you? When you go to buy a Christmas tree, you got to decorate it before Christmas. This is a true statement. Yes. Okay. Now, what would a terrible Christmas look like? I want to hear a few, a few answers. All right. We're, we've worked our way through all. Uh, how about Norris? How about you go first? Terrible Christmas. You forgot your answer. All right. I'll come back to you. Hudson. No Christmas tree. That would be sad, huh? James no presents do you have an answer hank yeah what would a terrible christmas look like a monster (laughs) that would be terrifying all right i'm gonna take one more uh i'm gonna okay everett last one for this question a terrible christmas If your tree got l- shot by lasers, that would be terrifying too. So monsters and, and the house burning down, that, you guys are going to depths I didn't expect. All right, Norris has remembered his answer. Yes. All you get is clothing. All you get is clothing. <laughs> Norris. The best answers. All right. Okay, now I, I need two volunteers. Okay, I'm going to have Annabelle be one, and then I'm going to pick a boy for the other one. Hank, do you want to be the other volunteer? Yeah? All right, come on up. Okay, so Annabelle and Hank, come up up here, stand next to me. Come stand right here. Okay. Okay, guys, here's what I want you to imagine, okay? So Annabelle, stand right here. I want you to imagine Annabelle, her Christmas, she has an amazing Christmas, the way we just described it. She gets twenty amazing presents. Okay, Annabelle. Hank, for Christmas, has a terrible Christmas. He does. It's not like his tree burns down or or a monster appears. It's not going to be that bad. No lasers, but he doesn't get. He doesn't get. Let's imagine that he didn't get many presents. I want you guys to think. He for all he got for. He only got clothes. He only got hand-me-down socks for Christmas. (laughs) Imagine that. Okay. Do you guys think? Annabelle and Hank would be happy. Who do you think would be happy? Annabelle. Yeah, yes, just, just say it out. Annabelle. Okay, now I'll call on you. Why do you think Annabelle would be happy? Yeah, uh, Hudson. Well, because she got like toys. She got all the toys. Yeah, okay. Okay. Did, would, Hank, would Hank be happy? Yeah, Norris. Yeah, okay. So, so Nora says that Annabelle should be happy at first with all of her presents, but eventually she probably gets sad or bored like she wouldn't know what to do with all of it. Advanced this is okay. Okay. Now, I want to I want you guys to imagine something. I want you guys to switch places. The next year at Christmas, everything turns. Hank has an amazing Christmas. He gets all tons and tons and tons of presents, even though the previous year was awful. And then, but Annabelle, fortune's turn, something happened. She doesn't get all she gets from all she gets is, is a beat-up toy from her older brother for Christmas. No, or clothes. <laughs> Isaac says he would not do that. Will, will these kids so will these kids will, who will be happy now? Who will be happy now? Isaac. Uh, Hank. Hank. You think Hank? Okay. So so Okay, so there's a way here that the kids will they'll not end up not being happy even though they get lots of toys, you're saying. Oh, I lost the toy, yeah. we've lost toys. Oh yes, uh, James. Yeah, oh, like so maybe kids will be happy because they find ways to play out of their own imagination. Sure. Okay. All right. You guys did a great job. You can take a seat. So, you guys... Good job, Can You can take a seat. Good job. Good job, guys. Here's a question for you guys. So, I was posing that for you guys. So, there are, year, there are years where you get lots of toys. Maybe you get, don't get lots of toys for Christmas. Here is... A question for you guys. So we tend to think right away that whoever gets the most presents will be the happiest, right? And you guys are really advanced and you're thinking of ways that maybe you aren't. But did you guys know, did you guys know that some of the, that often the richest people in the world, the people who have the most things, tend to be the least happy people in the world? Why do you guys think that is? And I'm saying this as a guy who just wants more things just like anyone else. Why do you guys think it is? Uh, yeah, Isaac. Yeah, baby. People they don't have they don't they, they don't know what to spend their money on. Okay, that, that sounds like a problem I'd like to have. Yeah. What do you guys think? I want to hear the kids' answer. Why do you think folks who tend to have a lot of money tend to be the least happy? Yeah, Maisie. They just, they have gold and silver lying all over their house. They don't know what to do with it. That would, be, that would be really distressing. I'll take that problem any day, though. Um, all right, Ina. Do you remember Christmas tree? Yes. All right, guys. So in the passage, if you guys are paying attention to the passage we read from the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, do you guys remember who the Apostle Paul is? Some yes, some no. He's a guy, a character in the Bible. He went around and he planted churches. And right now he's, as we read this letter, he's been imprisoned. He's in chains. Paul says to this church, he says he's learned the secret, the secret to being content, which is kind of a way of like saying being happy. He's learned the secret to being happy when he has a lot, like when one kid up here has a lot, and also the secret to being happy when he has a little. It's a secret. And you know, when things are secret, it's always cool, right? Like a, an ordinary handshake is not very interesting, but a secret handshake is really cool. It's the secret. If it's a yeah, secret, you can't tell the people. But Paul, t- he tells us what the secret is, the secret to being happy with a lot or with but a little. If you, if you have to do it, all right, all right. Do you have any guesses on what the secret is, Everett? What, what do you think the secret is? It's hard to guess. All right. Okay, let me tell you what the secret is. The secret, what's the secret for Paul to being happy when he has a lot or when he has a little? It's just simply, I'll, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you this. Don't worry. It's that Paul has Jesus. Is that what you're going to say? I should have called on you. It's that, it's that he, has, he has Jesus and that, that Jesus is with Paul. And even when he has when he has a lot and he's bored because of all the stuff he has, because he has gold and silver bars lying around his house, he has Jesus. And when he has little, when all he gets for Christmas is hand me down socks or he just gets clothes, he has Jesus. And Jesus and Jesus is better and this sounds kinda cheesy, guys, I know. And it's like presents are so amazing. But Jesus is better than any of the gifts that we get at Christmas. He's so good that he makes us he can we can be happy in him. We can be content in him no matter how much or how little we have. Do you, know, you guys want to know that so that's the secret. Is that Paul has Jesus. But there's actually kind of a secret behind the secret. And it's this. And you guys can take this back and maybe you can ask your parents or your grandparents what this means. The secret behind the secret, it isn't just that Paul has Jesus, but that Jesus has Paul and will never let him go, no matter what. That may sound kind of confusing, so you can maybe ask your grown-ups about what that means. No matter how little Paul has or how much Paul has, Jesus has Paul, okay? All right, let me say a prayer for you guys. It's been really fun. You guys did great. Uh, Father, I thank you for these kids, and uh, I pray you bless them this morning. I thank you that they're part of our church and they get to join us for worship, and I pray a blessing on them in this waiting for Christmas season. I pray that they would have a wonderful Christmas 29 days from now, and uh, bless the rest of our service and us having them here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys can go back to your seats. Give them a round of applause, everyone. They did great. job, kids. I invite you to have the the hand out in front of you. I'll be referring to the verses from this passage here and there throughout uh, my sermon. Why have we been in Paul's letter to the Philippians this fall? As I was praying for our church and those who regularly attend our church, those who visit our church last spring and last summer, I, I sensed uh, in my prayers for you all, uh, I just really f- heard, felt like what seemed like a common cry coming from a lot of our hearts, uh, which is that my, my life isn't what I hoped it would be. My life isn't what I expected it would be. And I thought Philippians is a book that could get at that heart question for us as a church. And um, I, I, my, my life isn't what I expected it to be. Uh, the biggest demographic in our church are folks in their 30s to early 40s. I'm on the younger wing of that. But we're like reaching this, this stage of adulthood of life. Where like the age of like limitless options of anything that our life could be is like increasingly behind us. And like life is set in. But that cry of the heart, my life isn't what I hoped it would be. You could be feeling it no matter what age you're at. If you're here and you're a teenager or in your early 20s, you could be feeling that in a sharp way. If you're old enough now to get senior discounts in places, there are definitely ways that you could be feeling that, perhaps even more acutely than someone who's my age. Why are we feeling this? Perhaps our our friendships haven't been the way that they, they've been harder than we expected. Friends have moved away. People have changed or we've changed. Our careers haven't gone the way that we expected them to. Maybe we're fighting to hold on in tough economic times or we've gotten what we wanted. We've reached the major milestones. And it feels empty. Or we're in our careers and we're just bored. Maybe our family life hasn't been what we hoped it would be. Family members have gotten sick or died. Perhaps marriage has lost its joy or it's just gone. Or marriage is barely there and it needs to be totally rebuilt. And being part of the church has been hard in ways that you may not have expected. Or perhaps in ways you did expect. My life isn't what I hoped it would be. And we look around and we say, surely God, this isn't all that you have for me. So I'm going to conclude this sermon series on the Paul's letter to the Philippians. Using this letter, using particularly chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Aiming directly at that cry of our hearts. I invite you to be praying, pray for me as I speak about this matter. Like that heart-level cry. I know by like knocking at this door, it's walking in some of the deepest corners of our hearts, the places of the most pain, the most sadness, and the most anger. And I would invite you to let God minister to you in that place. Today, minister to you there. And if you're here and you would say, I don't think that really dark, sad sentence would apply to me, that's okay. Great. <laughs> High five. I'm thankful for you. Um, it probably will someday. So store it away. And like I said, I'll be drawing largely from verses 11 through 13 in this passage, but I'll also be drawing from themes from the rest of the letter. And I just have two points. And it's that that Christ is our satisfaction and Christ is our strength. So first off, about Christ is our satisfaction. Uh, This passage is the end of the most famous thank you letter ever written. Uh, This letter, uh, Paul wrote this letter in response to receiving a, a, a person named Epaphroditus from the Philippian church, came, checked on him, and gave him a big financial gift from the Philippian church. And Paul writes, this is the section of the letter where Paul really, he thanks the Philippian church for this gift. And Paul walks, as he gives this thank you, he walks this careful line. I don't know if you detected this as we were reading this passage. First off, Paul's just, he's really warm, friendly, and joyful. And he expresses a huge thanks to the Philippians for their big gift. In verses 14 through 16, he recounts the ways that the Philippians had partnered with him financially and otherwise, in the gospel. He's like, hey, in the beginning, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me except you. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. He remembers the past things that they've done. It's him being grateful for them. He says in verse 18, your gift it was, it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. What they've given to Paul, he says, they've given to the living God. There's a whole theology of generosity in there that we we don't have time for today. But you can hear Paul is incredibly grateful for this church that loves him so well. And at the same time, he wants to model for the Philippians how his well-being is not based ultimately in the gift that they've sent, but on Christ alone. In verses 11 through 13, which we'll go through in more detail, Paul wants them to know, like, hey, I, you receive, like, that gift was a huge help to me. And at the same time, I, w- I wasn't in need. Like, I've learned to be content in any situation, he says. In verse 17, uh, Paul says, I'll read it. He says, not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul clarifies he wasn't ultimately seeking to just get gifts from them, but the primary thing that he desires for them is the fruit that increases their credit for them to advance in the gospel. He wants them to grow in maturity in Christ, which the gift shows that they are. Which is all just to say as you as you get this picture together like Paul's not he's not like a theology robot monk, you know, he's not like I have Jesus therefore everything's okay. He's a man of flesh and blood, he needs food and friends. But Paul is showing the Philippians and us how he's satisfied in Christ, not in his circumstances. He's satisfied primarily, ultimately, thoroughly in Christ. Why is Paul satisfied in Christ? Let's read verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? How can Jesus be so satisfying to him that he can be content no matter what? And looking at this and looking at this letter, I would point out two ways that Jesus can be so satisfying, that he is so satisfying to Paul. These aren't exhaustive, but this is the start of it. First off, Jesus is so satisfying to Paul because Jesus has completely changed Paul's story and the way he understands himself. His origins, his life work, his destiny, all has been reshaped by Jesus. Put it another way, Jesus is not a thing for Paul to consume. He's not just a good or a service that Paul can rate on Google Reviews. He's the all-encompassing Lord. Paul's life has now become part of Jesus' story, not the other way around, if that makes sense. Jesus isn't just the sprinkles on the top of the ice cream of Paul's life. He's completely changed it all. If Paul faces anything, hardship or plenty, which are both challenges, by the way, note that, Paul, in anything, Paul roots himself more in Jesus. When Paul faces want, he's more connected with his Savior who faced want. He can rest in how his Savior was victorious on the other side of death. Christ's story has become Paul's story. Christ's resurrection has become, will be, Paul's resurrection. No matter what curveball's life throws at him. And in this, there's just a profound satisfaction for Paul and for us. And there are different levels of satisfaction in our lives, right? Like it's on, on like a, a shallow level, like it's really satisfying if you've been, you know, working out or doing like a, a strenuous activity and you're really thirsty and you have a drink of water, like that's really satisfying, very satisfying. On a deeper level, it's really satisfying to have a community of friends who knows you and loves you and a place to go on Friday nights after a long week at work to hang out with people. It's really deeply satisfying in a deeper way than the water, right? For Paul, Christ is the deepest level of satisfaction. It's the satisfaction that undergirds everything else in his life. It's a wellspring of satisfaction that bubbles up into the smaller areas of the things above where life appears to not be going in the way it's supposed to be. So pauls he's satisfied in Christ because Christ has totally changed around his story. The second reason how Paul is is satisfied in Jesus is that Paul's really moved by how Jesus saved him specifically, personally. In chapter three, Paul said, Christ Jesus made me his own. Paul recounts movingly in chapter 2, he says he, how Jesus, who had everything, became nothing, took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death, even a, a criminal's death on a cross, for Paul. It's a very personal satisfaction, knowing he's, very, he's personally loved by this Jesus. Jesus' love for Paul, it's not that's something Paul read about online, It wasn't a comment on social media. Jesus literally lived, literally died, and literally rose again for Paul and for us. It's it's, it's a personal satisfaction. It's a a specific satisfaction. So as you you consider, as we consider how our life isn't what we hoped it would be, here's what this means. (sighs) Whatever thing whatever thing. And we want so many good things in the ways that we're, we feel that gap in the sadness. Whatever thing we think we were supposed to have, it would not have been satisfying like Christ is satisfying. This is what this means. Just observe or ask someone else who has the thing that you wish you had Who has the life that you wish you that you think you were supposed to have. There's someone else in this room who has that success or that family life or that friendships, whatever it may be, they will tell you those hey, those things are great, but they're still searching for the satisfaction. It hasn't made them whole. It's brought problems that they that they they didn't know they would have had. The thing that you desire, it would not have been as profound a satisfaction, giving meaning to all your life like Christ does. Um, It would not have been as personal a satisfaction as the God of the universe dying to save you from sin and death. Um, Christ satisfies us in a way that our dreams for life never can. In him, we're part of a story that's bigger than ourselves. In him, we have a personal Savior who bled and died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, all your sins, who rose to new life so that you could be raised on the last day. As I said when I preached on, when I preached on Philippians 2, this beautiful passage about what Jesus has done, no one will ever love you like Jesus loves you. And there's something that to just rest in, in that, something so deeply satisfying, more than anything, any other version of what our lives were supposed to be, ever could satisfy us. Christ is our satisfaction. Second point, less time on this one. Christ is our strength. Um, after writing about how he learned the secret to being content in plenty or in want, Paul writes... I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the secret that Paul is referring to in this passage. The secret. How does Paul remain content in every, any and every circumstance? It's because Christ is in him, strengthening him. Christ is in Paul. But as I hinted at with the kids, Paul would actually flip that wording. Not that Christ is in him, but that he, Paul, is in Christ. As we've been going through Philippians, have you noticed how frequently the words in Christ appear in this letter? It happens 10 times. And that doesn't include the times where Paul says things like this. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. My imprisonment is for Christ. Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. To live is Christ. Paul's body, his emotions his very life, are so, so, so close to Christ. Um, As our, our formerly pastor, John Alexander, would say, Christ is closer to Paul than his very breath. And so he is with us, with any of us today who have even the smallest seed of faith in Christ your faith is the same as Paul's. Your fa- faith rests on the same Christ. The same Christ is near to you. And here's what that means for those of us who look at our life and say it, doesn't, it isn't what we expected. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you you are capable of so much more than you think because Christ is capable of so much more than you can imagine. In Christ, as you, as like the, as you face that gap every day, in Christ, you have a wellspring of love, endurance, peace, and joy that's within reach at all times. And I just want you to know, like, God isn't done with you. He has work for you to do. And He's given you the strength in Christ to do it. So, to conclude our, our sermons on this remarkable letter, I want to offer you an invitation, whether you're here and you have that faith in Christ or you don't. I want to invite you. To lay down your dream of what your life was supposed to be and turn to Christ who will satisfy you more deeply and personally than any dream life ever could. And I want to invite you to lay down your dream for what your life was supposed to be and turn to Christ who will strengthen you to live the life that he has put in front of you. And take comfort that Jesus This is the last words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Take comfort that he is with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.